But strangely, uh, in Anaheim, and I don't know what woke me up, I found myself awake in the middle of the night and staring without glasses on out the window, and I don't know if it was raining or, or no, it, it, it wasn't raining because then I would have thought it was lightning. Anyways, in the middle of the night, there is a, a ginormous, blinding flash of light. And I had no idea what it was. Being the optimistic person that I am, I automatically think, like, who wouldn't think this? Oh, it's a nuclear bomb. So I just kind of waited, you know, for the blast to hit. And it wasn't. So eventually, uh, after getting up and saying, well, what was that? I went back, t- went back to sleep. What do you think in those seconds where you think, is this the end? Am I going to die? It's not the same, but on amusement park rides, I've had that same feeling. Uh, I don't know if you've, any of you have been to Magic Mountain, but when they drop you 400 feet on one of those towers, and you're like, what is my hope in life and death? And that's not bad when you know that really you could die. Like you're just waiting for that, that blast to hit you. What is your hope? Is your faith and hope in God at that moment? Is your confidence fully like we just sang? And, and, the, and the, the, there were great songs speaking about our hope being in the blood of Christ and in his finished work. Fearing God in the face of imminent death is a litmus test. It's not the only one, but it's a litmus test of your salvation. What are your faith and hope in? Is it in the finished work of Christ? But do you fear God when death isn't imminent? I mean, it's one thing when you know death's approaching and you reach out and cling to it. Yes, I know I'm saved. My only hope is Christ, right? You're not saying, look, Lord, at all my good works. But what about when death isn't imminent? When the expiration date on your life is unknown. And that is what we're, we're looking at in First uh, Peter 1, verses 17 to 21. It's look, looking at fearing God. Would you live more in fear if you knew you had five years left? Five years to the date. Or maybe if you found out that you only had six months left to live. When we, whether we have six seconds or six months, the true believer's confidence when facing judgment doesn't change. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. But with more time to reflect, we must ask ourselves a different question. I mean, none of us are facing that as much as we know right now. So we have more time to reflect, and we must ask ourselves a different question. Am I living fearing God? Not just do I fear God in those moments when death is approaching, but right now, am I living fearing God? Now, perhaps this sounds overly serious for a Sunday morning. It's still early. But God's messenger, the Apostle Peter, knew that the churches scattered across Asia Minor needed to hear on a Sunday morning, as Silvanus brought this letter to them, the, the churches scattered across Asia Minor, the churches that were facing the diverse kinds of persecution that they were going through, they needed to think about living in fear, conducting themselves in fear. 
Now, these churches needed encouragement, and we've seen that in verses 1 through 12, that they needed encouragement. And so if you are here this morning and need encouragement, read those verses. And we're going to find other very encouraging things this morning as well. But they also needed to be exhorted. And we see that he quickly moves there in the second part of the letter, verses 13 to 25. Today we're looking at the third in a series of commands he gives in verses 13 and 25. In verse 13, Peter calls them to set their hope fully on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ comes back, to set their hope there. The second command is in verse 15. To be holy as God is holy. The third command we started on last week, and we will review a little bit for those of you who weren't here, and is in verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So that's a little of the context here. I'm going to read now 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a group this morning whose faith and hope are in you. Lord, we we recognize with this many people here um, that there may be those among us who don't know you in this way, who don't have that confidence, who when they think of coming to judgment have such fear because they are not right with you. We do pray that this morning as your son is exalted, as he is exalted as you intended him to be raised and given glory, um, that uh, the clear message of hope in the gospel would be seen. Lord, that they would see the value of the blood of Christ. But Father, for most of us here this morning, we come because our faith and hope are in you. And that is good news for our souls as we go through um, weeks which are difficult. Lord, and yet you preserve us through faith and we continue in faith. It is sobering to read uh, this call uh, to live our lives conduct ourselves in fear. So we pray, Father, for lots of wisdom as we look at your word this morning. I pray, Father, that you would help us to examine our hearts to see whether we are doing that. I pray that you give us clarity of thinking through your spirit, Lord, that we would understand together what, what, what kind of fear uh, is being talked about here. Lord, we pray that the end result would be lives that are bringing glory to you by becoming transformed into Christ-likeness. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Please give us ears that are ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're continuing from last week. So it's the same 
proposition is last week from 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. We're going to see three reasons we ought to conduct ourselves in fear during our sojourn on earth. Three reasons we ought to conduct ourselves in fear during our sojourn on earth. If that sounds familiar to you, it's not bad. It's where we started last week, and we're going to continue. We only got through the first of those reasons. We began last week at the command to conduct ourselves in fear. And so, by way of review, what does that mean? To conduct, to live, to behave in fear. We learn that it's to live in a way that is appropriate to God's revealed word. A way that is appropriate to both his character, what he loves and what he hates. A way that's appropriate to his holiness. But it's also living appropriate to the commands that he gives. It's conducting ourselves in fear is living cautiously circumspectly, vigilantly. It doesn't mean living in terror or dread, like watching a horror movie, someone's going to jump out and kill you or take your life or hurt you. It's more an example of handling a gun with, with care or driving a car with care. It's not just, you're not shaking at the wheel, but there is a sense of sobriety about it, of safeness. Now, I want to build upon that description because as I was thinking this past week, I was concerned that I was missing out a little bit of the focus on what does it mean to, to conduct ourselves. So we spent a lot of time talking about fear and how that's not just a, a shaking fear because you don't know if you're in a right relationship with God or not. But what does it mean to conduct ourselves? I don't know if you ever grew up playing a silly game. It's not even a game, really. It's just something that children do. Uh, if you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. How many of you have ever done that or something like that? Okay. It's not like that's a good thing. You avoid stepping on a crack because you don't want to break your mother's back. Now, even if you never played that, you've all seen children do this, right? If you go to a place where there's lots of either cracks or lots of tiles, they're somehow before long dancing along, trying to only walk on the tiles and avoid all the cracks. This is, of course, provided you've got a good relationship with your parents. It's a silly dance of avoidance. and That's not how we are to live as Christians. Living in fear is not tiptoeing around, seeking to avoid misstepping lest something superstitiously bad happens. Conducting ourselves in fear instead does mean being intentional about obeying his revealed commands. And I don't think I emphasized that enough last week. It's being intentional about obeying his commands. I was reading in Joshua and 22, uh, this, this, this verse leaps out, and it epitomizes what living in fear is, what conducting ourselves in fear is. And this is appropriate. Uh, as Peter, a Jew, one of Jesus' apostles, would have known these kinds of commands. There's many of them very similar in Scripture. But Joshua 22, verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, a servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That right there is a great example of what it means to conduct ourselves in fear. It's living intentionally to saying, how much of God's law can I obey? What commands apply to the situation now? Which commands are going to apply as I go home? As I wake up in the morning. 
You can also think another good example of that kind, and, and that was Joshua 22, verse 5, but is in a similar vein, Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. That's there, the parable of the wise and foolish builder. The wise builder who builds on rocks is someone who listens and obeys. That's an easy way, I think, to understand what living in fear is. My creator has commanded that I do this, so I'm going to do that. Again, now, we misconstrue fear if it's like, and if I don't, he's going to strike me with lightning. He's going to take my life. Although there are serious warnings about living in disobedience. And, I mean, we're reminded of that every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. But it's that attitude of saying, what does the Lord say? And I'm going to obey it. So what do you know that God's word has commanded you to do? As a brother or sister in Christ, what are the commands he's given? As a disciple maker, someone sent in the world to make disciples. As a worshiper. As a lover of God, as a spouse, as a citizen, as a parent. What has he commanded you to do with your lips, with your eyes, with your time, with your wallets? See, fearing God is less like a child. It's not like a child nervously looking over his shoulder to see if their parents are looking. If you've had little kids, you've seen them do that. Like, are my parents looking now? Like, can I get away with this? That is not living in the fear of God. The fear of God is more like being given instructions from a parent and that child seeking to obey those with their parent watching, hoping to please their parent. It's a beautiful thing. It's taking God's commands seriously. Now, along with that, we can also say that fearing God is not worrying that there may be other commands he hasn't revealed to you. I hope there's not too many double negatives there. It's not fearing, I mean, it's not worrying that there's other commands he hasn't given. It's being worried about obeying the commands he has given and not what's out there. See, God doesn't have kind of hidden traps of obligations he's hiding from you. He's not looking for you to, to fall into sin. He's made his will clear. And there's freedom when we know his laws, when we look at his commands and say, whoa, he's put this beautiful, I don't know if it's a beautiful fence. I don't know if a fence can be beautiful, but it's a great fence. I'm thankful for the fence. He's put this giant fence around us inside his green pastures. That's what his commands are. We don't have to worry if there's kind of secret bear traps that are going to catch us in a command we haven't obeyed. That's not fearing God the way that he's talking about here. That's not living circumspe- circumspectly. That's, that's, that's a wrong kind of fear. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is a light to our feet. He shows us where we are to obey. He puts a fence around our lives so that we can enjoy obeying him if we are in his son. So I, I wanted to kind of go back to that a little bit. Because conducting ourselves in fear is not just nebulous. It's not just like, oh, i got to live cautiously. It's looking at his commands and saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard at obeying these. These commands are good. 
We started last week on the first of three reasons to conduct ourselves in fear, and that's as we cultivate this this conviction to conduct ourselves in fear. Peter started with the first of those in reason one. Your father is an impartial judge. I'm going to review this very quickly. If you would like to explore this more, I know that those are kind of difficult concepts uh, to keep in your mind at the same time, at least for some of us. God is father and judge. Like, how does that work together? Particularly knowing what I know, if you understand the doctrine of justification, I've already been declared righteous. So how does that work? Well, I, I, I encourage you to listen to last week's message if you want to explore that further. We know that God is our Father because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. For the, those who have their faith in Him, He is their Father. But that doesn't change the fact that He's also judge. He's an impartial judge. Scripture is full of many verses that talk about us being judged according to our deeds. Having Him as Father doesn't change his, our, our expectation, we're still going to come before him as judge. Now, we talked about the attitude which we come before him. It's not dread. It's not dread. But confidence of reward. Because we who have been united with Christ are obeying him. We have the mind of the spirit. We are not in the flesh. Our lives are obeying him. Are working in righteousness. Now, we know that that righteousness is not perfect righteousness. But it is pleasing to him. Our conduct is the testimony of our conversion. Our right living is the evidence that we have imputed righteousness. The way that we live shows to whom we belong. So we don't have to be afraid coming before our father who is judge. Because he is our father. We are, are in Christ, and that being in Christ has led to the fruit of obedience in our lives. Now, we've already talked about this in the beginning of our messages. We face death, and if all of you were to say, you're going to die in the next moment. If you're suddenly saying, you know, I think I'm going to be okay. I've, 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 I've basically obeyed a lot of God's laws. I've avoided lots of sins. That is not saving faith. Saving faith is saying, my only hope is in Jesus Christ. It's because he died for me, because he took the wrath that I deserve. That is what saving faith is. But the evidence of that saving faith, let's say that minute, you know, you thought you were going to die, and then it turns into lifetime. The evidence of that is obedience. So that was our First reason, and I don't want to spend too much time reviewing, your father is an impartial judge. We saw that in the beginning of verse 17. Let's go to the second reason. Your father ransomed you at an immeasurable cost. Your father ransomed you at an immeasurable cost. And we see that in verse 18. Verse 18 begins, knowing. Peter's reminding them of something that they already know. It is part of what saving faith is. Beginning of verse 18 continues, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. To be redeemed or ransomed means to be set free, to be, to be rescued. Pastor MacArthur says the term means to purchase release by paying a ransom, to deliver by the payment of a price. To the Greeks, the word was a tech 
was a technical term for paying money to buy back a prisoner of war, to redeem them, to ransom them, to take them into your possession, to free them by paying the price that was, that, that was listed for them. Now, as a Jew, Peter had grown up understanding redemption. Redemption was a huge part of Israel's history as they reflected about being redeemed from Egypt. And Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 reminds them of the Passover and the rescue from Egypt. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They were rescued from slavery. But Peter had also heard Jesus predict that Jesus would pay the cost of ransom for sinners. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter had grown up in a context of ransom, of knowing about redemption, of seeing a whole sacrificial system built around this idea that something dies in my place. And then he hears that Jesus is the one who is going to give his life as a ransom for many. The end of verse 18 tells what they were ransomed from, the way of life inherited from your forefathers, your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That way of life there is the same noun translated in the New American Standard as behavior in verse 15, where he calls them to be holy in all their behavior, in their way of life. It's the same verb we saw in verse 17 in the command to conduct yourself. So behavior, conduct, the way of life. Futile means empty and worthless and vain. You can imagine um, that you have a family heirloom. It's passed down from generation to generation. It's a treasure chest. And everything you've heard about it is that it's filled with gold and jewels. Your family has safely guarded this from generation to generation. And for some reason, and you can, I don't know why, you open it, expecting to see all this treasure in there. But what's inside when you, when you open it? Only dust. It was full of promise. Maybe it looked good, maybe it was shiny on the outside. But inside there was nothing. That's the idea behind this word futile, empty, worthless, vain. You had put your hope in that inheritance, but there was nothing inside. Peter says that they were ransomed for, from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That way of life that each of us inherited from our forefathers, it was impossible to save us from judgment. It was impossible to save us, to rescue us from slavery to sin. Recently, we got to see the King Tutankhamen exhibit at the California Science Center. It's only there for a couple more weeks. If you got an opportunity, it was a, a tremendous exhibit. Um, the King Tut, uh, his corpse was sealed in the tomb with everything he thought he'd need in the afterlife. There's a room full of furniture. There's chariots. There's over 400 little statues representing the servants who are going to be brought to, brought to life and are going to serve him in the afterlife each of them with a charm or a little kind of magical spell on them. 
It, it, was, it was everything he thought that he would need. But as King Tutankhamun found, the moment he breathed his last breath, everything in the tomb, everything that he had put his hope in, was an empty way of life inherited from his forefathers. There was no hope at all in that tomb. So I ask you this morning, have you been rescued from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers? There's different kinds of futility. Some families pass down the importance, the, the hope, the, the identity and savings accounts and luxury cars in achievements and salaries and degrees. Others pass down systems of, of good works and religious duties, of ways of trying to balance out yourself before God so that you will come out in the end squeaking your way into heaven. But unless it was the true gospel, the good news that we can be saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone who takes the punishment for sinners... The way of life you inherited from your forefathers is as unable to save you as what King Tut's forefathers left him. No hope. But there is hope for you this morning in Jesus Christ. Pro prophesying about that future Savior, Isaiah 61 verse 1 said, speaking in the servant of the Lord's voice, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is really what Jesus is saying. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to, to prisoners. And by God's grace, that is what I get to proclaim to you this morning. That there's liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. There's freedom today from the power of sin that dominates your life. There's freedom from the penalty of sin waiting you upon death. There's freedom one day from the presence of sin itself in the presence of Jesus Christ. There's no hope in the futile way of life passed down to you from forefathers. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. And if you need more of that hope, turn to Jesus Christ and say, I need life. I have no hope. Everything that my forefathers passed down to me, everything I've inherited, this treasure chest, is empty. It's vain. And turned to Jesus Christ and said, if you need to talk more about that afterwards, please come and talk to me. The Father, God the Father, didn't redeem his people with anything as cheap as gold and silver. Gold and silver, it says, knowing in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. Silver and gold are perishable. They're subject to decay. You can rescue someone's decaying body with decaying money. You can pay a price for someone's physical body. But you can't for their mortal soul. It's going to take something more permanent. Something imperishable. And he tells us what that is in verse 19. But with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Blood is symbolic of life itself. If you go outside and the street is covered in blood, you know that people died there. Or at least it's what you fear. Without blood, no one can live. Ephesians 1.7 says that in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The middle of verse 19 describes this blood, this precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. 
And we don't exactly know what lamb there was in Peter's mind as he talks about this. Because the Jewish world was full of lambs. Perhaps in Peter's mind it was the many lambs he had seen sacrificed outside of the temple or inside the inner court as Jews would bring millions of lambs to be sacrificed. So maybe that was in Jesus' mind, in Peter's mind as he thinks about this as of a lamb and blemish and spotless. Or maybe as he's speaking about redemption, he's thinking of the Passover lamb. We read about that in Exodus 12.5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So maybe that's the unblemished lamb, that spotless lamb that Peter's thinking of. That lamb whose blood would be poured on the, or spread on the doorpost of the house so that when God passes through and took the life of the firstborn, he passed over those houses. Or maybe Peter's thinking of that prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7, of the suffering Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Those kinds of scripture, that picture of the Passover lamb, a sacrificial system with where many lambs are sacrificed, the prophecy of the suffering Messiah dying as a lamb that doesn't open its mouth, the background of something like what John the Baptist said in 129, John 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The end of verse 19, it says, With precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Scripture is very clear about Jesus Christ being the only human who had no sin. Later in 1 Peter 2, Peter would say, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was sinless, spotless, blameless, with no inclination toward any sin. Nothing but disgust for sin. Nothing but distaste for sin. He knew no sin. I don't know if you have the same experience that I do, but pretty much any time I hear a story of sacrifice, I find it impacting. Whether it's a sacrifice of a fireman to rescue someone, or a EMT, or um, a, a police officer, soldier, anytime you hear the stories of sacrifice of one person giving their life for another, that soldier who throws himself down on the grenade to protect his fellow soldiers. Those, the stories always get me. Giving your life for another. Often it's for people that you know or people you are hired to keep safe. Not for your enemies. But when Jesus gave his blameless life the sinless son died to save the rebels of his father. That is who we were. We were his enemies. When we appreciate and, and meditate on the cost which Christ paid for us to become slaves of God, God, and that is true. We're called to be slaves of God. 
We're set free to be his slaves, not to spend our lives pleasing ourselves, but to please him. We will conduct ourselves in fear when we meditate on that great cost. Titus 2.14 says how Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That was the purpose of our redemption, to be his people, zealous for good works. That old way of life, the way of greed and pride and lust and selfish ambition, that was empty. We, 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 we weren't going to profit from any of that. Christ took our wrath, the wrath that we deserve, to make us worshipers of the Father. So how can we flippantly, we cannot flippantly, dismiss the cost he paid by disregarding his commands? We cannot disregard, we cannot flippantly dismiss the cost he paid by disregarding his commands. A friend of mine gave his sister one of his kidneys. She was in desperate need of it. She would have died without it. She knows the price her brother paid to save her life. They both have one kidney now. Now, I imagine she lives in life a little bit differently. I would hope. I imagine she sees her brother a little bit differently. I imagine she would care for her body, this life that she has been given. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is why we are to conduct ourselves in fear, because the most valuable substance, if we can call it substance in the universe, the blood of Christ was shed for us. How cautiously are we going to listen to his commands? That is not something that characterizes our church age. Our church age, and I think you could say this, has gotten high on grace. He's gotten fuzzy-minded in grace at times. We need to conduct ourselves in fear knowing. And grace is wonderful. This is what grace, grace makes you listen to this. Grace makes you look and appreciate and say, whoa, the blood of Christ was shed for me. Of course I'm going to obey him. That's how grace operates in our hearts. Grace does not liberate us to ignore God's law. I'm going to read a, from a commentator here named Robert Leighton. Consider often how much it costs for us to be redeemed from sin. And offer this answer to all the enticements of sin in the world. Except you can offer my soul something greater than the price that was given for it on the cross, I cannot listen to you. So, enticement, pleasure, if you can offer me something greater than Jesus' blood, I'll listen. But you're not going to be able to. He continues, far be it from me. Will a Christian say who considers his redemption that I should ever prefer a base evil desire or anything in this world or all of it to him who gave himself to die for me and paid my ransom with his blood? His matchless love has freed me from the miserable captivity of sin and has forever linked me to the sweet yoke of his obedience. Isn't that sweet? The sweet yoke of his obedience. I'll continue. Let Christ alone live and rule in me, and never let him leave my heart, who for my sake refused to come down from the cross. That is what grace does in someone's heart. 
So here there's strong reason to conduct ourselves in fear. Peter supplies one more reason to live our lives in fear. Our Father's an impartial judge. We've been purchased with the immeasurably priceless blood of Christ. Reason three, your Father sovereignly acted to bring you to himself. Your Father sovereignly acted to bring you to himself. And we're going to kind of go back and forth here uh, between the Father's actions and his purpose. So we'll look at the Father's actions, his purpose, his actions, and his purpose. And you'll, you'll kind of see that as we follow along. So let's look at the beginning of verse 20, the Father's action. It says, For he, referring to Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Before creation, he, now, so he was foreknown as passive. There's someone who does that foreknowing. And that foreknowing is the Father. The Father decided on the Son's role in this world before creation. And that was to be a spotless lamb. To think about that before anything was made. My son is going to suffer my wrath for these people. For those, and we see that in verse 2. Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The same foreknowledge which chose whom he would redeem. Chose whose blood would be shed in ransom. Only the infinite son could bear the unquenchable wrath of an infinite God. And it is an unquenchable wrath for any of us. That's why hell's eternal. But it was poured out on his infinite son. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And I like the, the, the ESV a, a little bit more here. He was made manifest in the last times. Because it, it shows that, that, that passive sense. He was foreknown by God the Father, and he was manifested by the God the Father. He was revealed. This verse hints at Jesus' as God the Son's pre-existence. It's not its major teaching here, but it does hint at it. God the Son has eternally been. But in these last times, the Father has made him known. Beginning with his incarnation, which we celebrate and remember around Christmas time. With him, with the God the Son becoming first that, that zygote. That embryo, that fetus, that baby. That's how he was manifest. He was manifested in the flesh. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 will never uh, stop marveling at this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, be held tightly and used for himself, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. That is how he was manifested in human form, as a human in human flesh. As, as we go on in verse 20 at, near the end, but it has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. The idea of last times means that we're in a whole different stage of human history now. That what God had been preparing before creation has now been revealed. These are the last times, the times in which he has made his son known. We're still waiting for that, re that revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back in glory. But the Son has been made known. So that's the Father action. The Father's doing the foreknowing there. The Father is the one who's manifesting his Son. And we see next what the purpose is. We see that at the end of verse 20. In the beginning of verse 21. For the sake of you. Like those 
profound words. For the sake of you, saint. For the sake of you who are in Jesus Christ. God was planning your salvation because he had set his affection upon you. It was for your sake, the sake of his elect, his children. It was a sobering reality, walking away from these artifacts, these beautiful, intricately carved artifacts from King Tutankhamun's tomb, and thinking, why me, O Lord? King Tutankhamun opened his eyes only to judgment. And I will not, when my eyes open after death, it will be to see my Savior. He was foreknown and manifested for your sake. Beginning in verse 21 describes his purpose further. Who through him are believers in God. To make you a believer. And think about this in this context of conducting ourselves in fear. The purpose is to make you a believer in God. It's, it's, it's what his purpose was. To make you a believer. To not doubt like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They doubted the goodness of God. They stopped believing God. But to make you a believer who, who submits to him, who trusts him, who listens to his words, who believes gospel promises. And perhaps Peter is reminding his Gentile audience here that apart from the ministry of Jesus Christ, these Gentiles who he was writing to would have never become believers in the one true God. And for most of us this morning, largely Gentiles, I don't know if all of us, largely, we were without, and Ephesians 2, I love these verses, 2 and 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that is who we all were. We were as doomed as, Ke as Tutankhamun in the tomb. But that wasn't God's purpose. For your sake, to make you believers who through him are believers in God. Believers in Christ alone, through whom there is only salvation. Peter emphasizes that, we're, that we are believers in the God of the Old Testament. So he returns his attention to the Father's action. We are believers in God, and this is what God did. We're, we're not just followers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus Christ, God the Son. We are followers of the only true religion ever. who through him are believers in God, and he returns, middle of verse 21, to God's actions, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The father planned the sacrifice of his son before the foundation of the world. The father manifested his son in the world. The father turned his back on his beloved son at the cross. The father then approved of his son by raising him from the dead. The father affirmed his son by giving him glory. The father exalted his son in heaven. And the father rewarded him for his job well done. 
Philippians 2, 9 through 11 finishes what we had started earlier. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Peter's talking about. He talks about raising him and bringing him glory. Now that's so exciting for, to think about Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter ate fish with Jesus. Peter denied Jesus and was reconciled to Jesus. And he knows that he was risen from the dead and that he is in heaven now glorified by the Father. And here we see the Father's purpose. Why does the Father raise and glorify his Son? So that your faith, at the end of verse 21, and hope are in God. That's why the Father raised and glorified his Son. So that your faith and hope are in God. Now again, think about that in the context of living our lives in fear, of conducting ourselves in fear. The Father wants to be the object of your trust. He wants to be the place where you find refuge. This is not just external law saying guilty, guilty, guilty. He exalted his Son so that your faith and hope are in God. The purpose of Christ's ministry was his father becoming your father. What an eternal mystery that we get to be get in on this eternal relationship between the son and the father, becoming Christ's brothers. The life of the sojourner, of the stranger here on this earth, is, is this beginning theme of 1 Peter is one of faith and hope. The saints in Asia Minor experienced this reality of living their lives in faith and hope as they were going through persecution for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And we do as well. We continue on until faith becomes sight, until hope becomes possession, until fearing God is no longer feared. Because I think as soon as we talk about it, we start fearing it. But in eternity, fearing God will be forever relished and savored. It'll be the most natural instinct of God's creatures to fear him in wonder and love. In perfect obedience to all of his commands. The father who requires you to fear him gave his son for your sake so that your faith and hope are in him. So when we conduct ourselves in fear, it's always keeping in mind this, this mind-blowing plan to make us believers, to bring us to faith and hope, to reflect on everything he did to make us his children. See, our father is not arbitrary or, or harsh. He doesn't come unhinged. We don't have to walk on eggshells around him. He's not a boogeyman lurking in the closet, waiting to jump out. Lawbreaker, you stepped on a crack. See, such a view of God is incompatible with hope and faith. It, it, it's, it's tough not to remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. See, this, this, that view of God does not align with faith and hope. 
In Matthew 25, verses 24 to 25. So the story there is the master goes away on his journey. He gives talents to three servants. One of the servants fears his master, but not in the kind of way that leads him to obedience. So it says in Matthew 25, verses 24 to 25. The one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, have what is yours. See, that is not a picture of hope and faith in God. It reveals, ultimately, that that servant did not know his master. And so the master says in Matthew 25, 30, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That servant had no fear of his master. Not the kind of fear that leads him to find refuge in his master. Not the kind of fear that leads to faith and hope. And that's why Peter ends this here. So that your faith and hope are in God. This is why the lamb, the spotless lamb, why he was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. This is why he was manifested for your sake. So that your faith and hope are in God. So that you would be a servant who would love obedience. Who would take the talents given and go and invest them. This is how we view our master. In Matthew 25, earlier it said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. See, we have a master who foreknew his son, who manifested his son, who appointed his son to be a ransom, who raised and glorified his son so that your faith and hope are in him. This is an inviting God who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He wants your faith and hope to be in him. And that will lead to you conducting your lives in the fear that he requires. Not terror or dread. In their final moments, the Christian who has conducted themselves in fear is not tossing out some final prayer that doesn't match up with his life. The Christian who's lived in fear, who's taken this command of verse 17 to 21 seriously, who's conducted themselves in fear in their last moment, is not tossing out some prayer that doesn't match up with their life. They're not just saying, Jesus is Lord and Savior, as a last-minute charm that's going to ward off judgment. See, the true believer, the one whose faith and hope are in God, conducts himself in fear during life, and then he awaits his master's commending voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. That is the blessing of those who live in fear. They look forward to their final breath when they get to hear their master say, well done, good and faithful servant. On his deathbed, and our deathbed, we may have tears of repentance, of missed opportunities. I have those already. I'm sure you do. But on our deathbed, for those who live in fear, we also have smiles. Because we look at what the Father has wrought in us in this life, what he's done in us, the good works he has created us for, that he's accomplished in us through Jesus Christ. 
the lungs that live in the fear of God, confidently exhale a final breath of faith and hope in God. The lungs that live in the fear of God, confidently exhale a final breath of faith and hope in God. Let's pray. Father, we are, I trust by your grace, uh, humbled this morning as we look at uh, what you have done um, so that we could live our lives in, in fear. I confess, Father, um, and, and I think I speak many of us here, that we so quickly get confused about fear. That even reading these verses kind of sets us off as if we're about to uh, take an unpleasant bite of something. Or as if it's going to do us harm. Lord, everything we see in this passage, from you being our Father, from the price that you paid for us with the precious blood of Christ, from this incredible plan you put into action, before creation, for knowing your Son to be that Lamb, so that our faith and hope are in you. All of this gives us the context of living our lives in fear before you, cautiously paying attention to your commands, not because you're a giant who's going to crush us with his fist when you see us disobey, but because you're a good God who's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you're the God who has, who has given his own beloved son to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, Father, I thank you in your grace uh, for providing us this context. And, Lord, I pray that we would take obedience seriously, Lord. That we would not scurry away from your commands but that we would be eager to fulfill commands in your presence, Lord. That we would love being in your presence, whether it's when we watch television or on the internet, Lord, whether when we're at work or at home, whether we're surrounded by people or alone, Lord, that we would be consciously living out our lives in fear, not dread, but in fear, aware that that you are a father and an impartial judge. Lord, I pray that you would bless the saints with the hope of this, this morning, with comfort, Lord, but with also conviction, with conviction to live our, our, our lives soberly and to conduct ourselves in fear with careful attention to the commands that you've given. Lord, I thank you that now we get to turn our attention uh, to um, remembering uh, the blood that precious blood of the spotless lamb. In Jesus' name, amen.